again, I think the only thing I like better than singing, Is He Worthy, is watching y'all sing, Is He Worthy. It's fun. Enjoy that. Um, I'm going to talk this morning about, anybody ever miscommunicated something in a text message? (laughs) Wow. I mean, I knew it was a thing, I just didn't know it was so pronounced. So have you ever sent or gotten a text that you read and just missed the whole point because you read it with your emotions ringing through it? Or you read your wife's text with your voice for her, which is usually not very nice. Don't do that. <laughs> don't, do, don't do that. <laughs> or maybe it could be an email too. I had a, a guy from a coal mine. I, was, I worked for a coal mine supplier. Uh, he sent me an email once that was in all caps. Well, what's that mean? He's yelling at me. He's mad. He's mad at me. Well, at least that's how I read it. Turns out he wasn't mad at all. He just doesn't like to capitalize, so he just makes everything capital. And he was super nice. I mean, seriously, when I talked to him, he was super nice. He was not mad at all. But I read his email like he's yelling at me. Once Amanda sent me a text. <clears throat> I was at Life Strategies, and I was with a client slash patient and my texts pop up on my screen, on my computer. And the text she sent was a picture of her van with ice and snow all over it. Well, I saw the picture and received the picture as if she was mad at me for not cleaning off her van. And I was mad. I got mad. I'm busy. I got stuff to do. I'm talking to somebody. I thought I better not answer this because she's mad and I'm mad and it's not going to turn out well. Turns out she was not mad. <clears throat> she just wanted me to see it. She was like, wow, that was a lot of snow. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I misunderstood her whole intention. She communicated something and I received it and processed it in a completely wrong way. Ever happened to you? Yeah. It's really easy to miscommunicate. Communication is super duper hard. On the flip side, anybody that got inside jokes with somebody, like you're around somebody that you've been around a long time and you come into a situation and you start laughing at something, they start laughing at something that nobody knows what's going on. It's just funny to you too or maybe a few of you. I could probably say things right now and my family would laugh and y'all be going. I do that all the time. It's true. Coaxium. He's coaxium. (laughs) Sometimes it can happen on purpose. Sometimes it can happen by accident. Well, today... As we start into Matthew 13, we find Jesus communicating in a very specific way for a very specific purpose for a very specific group of people. It's not by accident. He's going to be speaking in a way that some will purposely understand. In the same way, others are purposefully not going to understand. 
If you're not familiar with Matthew 13, some call it the home of the mystery parables of the kingdom. Um, and while we won't see those parables today, okay, we're actually, I hate to say it, it's like we're kind of, I'm kind of giving an introduction to an introduction to Matthew 13. We're not going to solve much this morning at all. Um, but we've got to set the parameters. Matthew 13 is a pivotal chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. Very important chapter. All the Bible is important. Every jot and tittle, I understand. But in understanding who Jesus is, what his mission was, and what he's doing at this time, it's crucial that we understand Matthew 13. And I say that with fear and trembling because I could really mess this up. And I don't want to pray for me, not just today, but I'm saying this whole chapter. And every, and again, that's always true, but I, there's this, I could really mess this up, and I don't want to. So I, I say with fear and trembling today that we're starting into Matthew 13, and we're going to see Jesus doing things. And uh, to be honest with you, maybe we don't like. Maybe we don't agree with. We think it's not very nice. But be careful. God in the flesh does not make a mistake. Omniscient God knows what He's doing. And hopefully we'll see that today. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at three sections of Matthew 13. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3, 10 through 17, and 34 and 35. Okay? So if you would please stand. That'll be our public reading and that's what we'll work through this morning. And again, we stand out of reverence, understanding that these are the very words of God. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. Now we jump to verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And we jump to verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit to open our eyes, to open our ears, to open our hearts that we might receive what you are saying through your word. Holy Spirit, please teach us, instruct us, convict us, build us up, tear us down, whatever you need to do 
so that we might be more like Jesus. Have your way. We ask it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Hmm. Okay. So we've been out of Matthew for a month. We The whole month of December, we weren't in the Gospel of Matthew. So obviously, hopefully, you know, it's important that we catch up. We kind of recap where we've been before December. And I think if I remember right, we were August of 18 when we started. August or September of 18 when we started the Gospel of Matthew. So let's catch up. <clears throat> Remind me again. What is Matthew's main purpose in writing this gospel? He wants to show Jesus as the king. The promised, long-awaited king of the Jews, king of the universe, who would fulfill the covenant that God had made with David, that he would have that David would have one of his descendants on the throne over God's people perpetually throughout eternity. We saw that in his genealogy which traced him back through David and Abraham. God's whole plan has, does, and will revolve around the person of Jesus. Jesus is the plan of God incarnate. He is the king of God's people. And Matthew's wanting very, very passionately to convey that to his original audience, which was probably mostly Jewish, but also God in his foresight understood that we would need to see that too. So we saw it in his genealogy. We saw him born as a fulfillment of prophecy. We saw him taken to Egypt and come back as another fulfillment of prophecy. He was moved to Nazareth according to prophecy. He was announced by his forerunner, John the Baptist, whose message was what? What was John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was preparing the way for the king to come. And then we saw Jesus baptized by John in the Jordan. And we, we heard the voice of the Father say, This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. We saw Jesus go into the desert where he was tempted by the devil and, of course, came out victorious. And then Jesus arrived back from his temptation and he was the one proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, just like John had. And after calling some disciples, Jesus began exhibiting his divine nature by teaching, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and by doing miracles of healing and deliverance so that people from near and far were coming to him to be healed. So that's through chapter 4, and that's a lot. Then in chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, we saw Jesus laying out the principles of the kingdom, showing what the members of this kingdom would look like in this world. After he finished this teaching, at the end of chapter 7, it says the crowds were amazed because he spoke as one who had what? Authority. And they were amazed by it. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus continued to teach and to work miracles. In chapter 10, he sent out his 12 disciples, calling them then apostles and instructing them to proclaim the kingdom, giving them the authority that he had to heal and to cast out devils. And then we came to chapters 11 and 12. Now, 11 and 12, again, start this pivot that we're talking about in chapter 13. In chapters 11 and 12, Jesus starts facing some serious doubts, even from John the Baptist. Remember, John sent messengers saying, are you the one or should we look for another? Because John's in prison and he's going, this isn't working out the way I thought it was going to work out. So there's some doubt, but there's also increasing opposition. The scribes, the Pharisees, they really start to accuse him and confront him. 
And he's really starting to say things that are making them go, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is not just inconvenient. This is blasphemous. He calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. He says something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. And he's pointing to himself. And they're amazed and they're going, you've got to be kidding me. You're a carpenter's son from Nowhereville. Who do you think you are? And so they start opposing him. And then Jesus heals a man who was deaf and demon-possessed. And the Pharisees then say, he's doing this by the power of Satan. Jesus denounces them and ends up saying that it's them who was under demonic influence, even saying that their blasphemous ways won't be forgiven in this age or the age to come. And there, near the end of chapter 12, Jesus says this, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Jesus is putting a period at the end of his pronouncement of judgment upon this wicked, evil generation. Jesus is saying that those around him will be worse than before he came and the demons will be all over the people and places that he had worked around. They had missed God in their midst and after he was gone, they would be in grave danger for missing their hour of visitation. And even Jesus' earthly family we saw at the end of chapter 12, came to speak with them. And we didn't really talk about it then. But in the other Gospels, it says they were concerned about him. They kind of might have thought he was nuts, too. You know, they might have been thinking, okay, this Jesus thing's got out of control. We've got to go save him. They're going to kill him because the Pharisees had said, we've got to kill him. That was their plan. So his, his family comes, and they're just like, we better save him. And they say, hey, Jesus, your family's outside. What does Jesus say? He replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And that's the end of chapter 12. And that brings us to today. So let's take all that and set the stage for what we're moving into today. Jesus has announced that his family are those who do the will of his father. That statement can seem insignificant, but he has given notice that the Jews who have refused and rejected him are no more God's family than those who are not God's people by birth. He has pronounced that they are not the family of God. They're not his family. And he has said that he is God in the flesh. Not in those exact words, but he has definitely said that. Jesus is seeking people who will do God's will. Not just people who are born in the line of Abraham. So get this straight. The Jews have rejected their Messiah. And now their Messiah will move on from them. And he will find people who will follow him. And where does he go? Does he go to the synagogue? No. Chapter 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. So Jesus was in a house at the end of chapter 12. And here it says, that same day, 
After all this confrontation, after all this stuff with the Pharisees, after him saying his family is not those who have the same DNA and the same blood flowing through their veins as him, he says, my family are those who do the will of God. That same day, he goes out of that house and he sat beside the sea. Now, if you go way back, when we talked about Jesus calming the storm and they're in the midst of the sea, we said that the Jews had this view of the sea, especially the Sea of Galilee, because it was prone to just crazy storms. They saw it as the abyss. They saw it as chaos. And they associated it with death. So Jesus goes out of the house and where does he go to? He goes and sits down beside the sea, beside the chaos where they would think of death, life himself sits there and says, here I am. This is where Jesus takes his ministry. Out beside the sea. Out into the chaos. Out to where everybody else is. He goes out there. And who's there? Verse 2. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. Well, just like in times past, wherever Jesus goes, there's a crowd, right? Jesus may have left his original audience, the Jews and the synagogue and the religious people, but that doesn't mean that people still aren't trying to get near him, that people still aren't coming around to hear him. And this crowd is so great that Jesus gets into a boat so that he can just get away from the crush of the crowd. And Jewish rabbis, when they were getting ready to, to, pre, to, to teach, would sit down. So Jesus gets into a boat and he sits down. So when he sits down, that's kind of his way of saying, I'm about to teach, y'all. I don't know if he said y'all or not, but that's kind of what he was doing when he sat down. So he gets into a boat and he sits down, just like he did on the Sermon on the Mount, right? He went up to the top of the mountain and when he sat down... He brought his disciples to him and opening his mouth, he began to teach them saying. So he's, getting, he's intending to teach from this boat. And so the crowd gets ready to hear what he has to say. Look at that again. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. Now get this picture in your head. I don't know how many people are in this crowd, but it's pretty big. Jesus, it's so big that Jesus says, I've got to kind of get back here so that I can talk to everybody. Gets in a boat, he pushes out just a little bit, sits down on the boat and everybody's listening, and Jesus starts talking. This crowd seeing Jesus preparing to teach, and they're just standing there, ready to listen. Standing on the beach with rapt attention on the rabbi in the boat. And now this. And he told them many things in parables, saying a sower went out to sow. We're not going to address the sower this morning. So, so, so what then? What's this mean? It's because it's pretty important. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, and if you've read it, if you're familiar with it at all, it's dense and it's thick, it's meaty, but it's pretty direct, right? Jesus spoke directly against the false religion of his day. Don't do what they're doing. Do this instead. They say the law means this, but it really means this. Okay, it's very straightforward. Jesus spoke directly against the false religion of his day, calling out hypocrites and the play acting of public performing. It was pointed. Here, with the crowds looking on and listening for Jesus' teaching, he tells them many things in parables. Now, what's a parable? The simplest way of defining it is as a story that communicates truth in a simpler way. 
But don't let that fool you. It's basically taking two things and setting them beside each other, saying this describes this. Okay? It's an illustrative story to help tell a truth in a memorable way. Aesop's fables. Think about that. We get uh, morals and, and main points from a fable. Uh, the animal reaching in and grabbing something can't get its hand out until it lets go of it. That, that type of thing. That's kind of like what a parable is. And Jesus is about to communicate, as we'll see through the parables, what the kingdom of heaven is like. Of course, the Jews had their own ideas about what the kingdom of heaven was. And I would say they thought that they had it figured out, that they knew it up and down, inside and out. But we've already seen through 12 chapters of Matthew that most of the Jewish people, especially the religious elite, are missing God in their midst as Jesus speaks. So these parables that Jesus is... Jesus, these parables that Jesus... Are speaking of Jesus is. So these parables that Jesus is speaking in, they serve a purpose. And it would seem it's a very peculiar and pointed purpose at this point of Jesus' ministry. So we'll skip the first parable and we'll go to verse 10 to see why is he speaking in parables. Verse 10. <clears throat> when the disciple then the disciples came to him. And said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? So, so this has the disciples' curiosity piqued. They're puzzled as to why Jesus is speaking in parables. And here in verse 10, he has spoken a parable. And they come to him and they're like, why parables? They recognize that Jesus is being at the very least cryptic. They come and ask Jesus, why this approach? This is new. This is not something we've seen before. And keep in mind what we said earlier. Jesus has left the Jewish establishment altogether and is focusing on finding and equipping God's people, His family. He spent so much time already focusing on His disciples, pouring Himself into them. And now they recognize that their Master is doing something peculiar. Why? They say. And He answers. Boy, does he answer? Verses 11 through 13. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Wow, what an answer. Why do you speak to the crowds in parables, Jesus? Because, Jesus says, you don't. Uh, because, Jesus says, you know, and they don't. And that's the way it's going to be from now on. Why are you using parables, Jesus? Because, Jesus says, you know, and they don't. Because only those who have been given insight into the secrets of the kingdom will understand these parables. And those who have not been given that insight will not. Because even what those unbelievers and refusers have will be taken away from this point on. Because they see, but they don't. They hear, but they don't. And they don't understand. And that's the way I want it. That's the way I have designed it. That's the way of the kingdom of heaven. Now do you hear what he's saying? 
He is teaching in parables because he doesn't want those who are not his to understand what he's saying. He's purposely hiding truth right under their noses. If he wants someone to understand, they'll understand. If he doesn't want them to understand, not only will they not understand, but even what they think they understand, what they may have understood before will be taken from them. And for those who are given access to the truth that he is speaking, that access came from Jesus. He granted that they would know and that they will have an abundance receiving more and more as they go. That's why he's speaking to the crowds in parables. And why that why? Verses 14 and 15. Indeed, Jesus says, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Why? Because God said this was going to happen. Why is this happening? Why is Jesus hiding truth and revealing it to other people? Because God said this was going to happen. This has been foretold. Twas foretold. When? Well, Jesus is referencing Isaiah. When he references this passage, which is Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, which says this. And he said, God said to Isaiah, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's a long time ago before Matthew. That's 700 years before Matthew's time. And God was saying this was going to happen at that time to Isaiah. And then Jesus brings it back up and says, this is the fulfillment of that, that Isaiah saw. Now keep in mind what had happened in Isaiah 6 before this. Isaiah 6, Isaiah had just seen a vision of the Lord. I saw the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died. And he was high and lifted up. Train of his robe filled the temple, smoke and pillars shaking, seraphim flying around him, calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah's like, whoa, whoa, send me out. I want to tell people about this. And what does God say? Go and make their heart dull, make their ears heavy, make their eyes blind so that they won't understand with their hearts, so that they won't turn and be healed. Now, again, take a minute and digest that. Jesus refers to God's pronouncement to Isaiah to go and preach so that people won't believe as being fulfilled in Jesus' day. And so Jesus is speaking in parables as a fulfillment of prophecy. And people are not seeing or hearing and thus are not coming to Jesus to be made right with God. Dull hearts ears that barely hear, closed eyes, all meeting Jesus' teaching with a tremendous thud. And you're thinking, well, Jesus is failing. People aren't understanding. No. Jesus is succeeding because He's doing exactly what He wants to do. It makes Him successful. 
in exactly what he's intending to do. He's pronouncing judgment as per the prophetic calendar of God on the people of God for rejecting the plan of God and the Messiah of God. God said it would happen and it's happening. But it's not just hiding truth. It's also revealing it. Verse 16 back in Matthew 13. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Now lest we forget, Jesus isn't hiding the truth from everyone. Just those who are not His, those who are not His family, who are seeking to do the will of God. He tells the disciples... But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Here, Jesus speaks to his family and juxtaposes them against everyone else who does not see nor hear. But, he says, your eyes and your ears are blessed because they see and they hear. You guys aren't like them. You guys aren't blind. Your ears aren't unhearing. You're blessed. Now, what's that word make you think of? Sermon on the Mount, right? Beatitudes. If we're honest, we don't read the Beatitudes back in Matthew chapter 5 and think, yeah, that sounds like blessedness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the pure in heart, the meek. I already said that, didn't I? The peacemakers, those who are persecuted and reviled. These are blessed people. But Jesus said, you're blessed as my people, as my family here because your eyes see and your ears hear. And you're also blessed because you're those things too. You're living out this kingdom life in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation who's missing it. So maybe we read Matthew 5 and we think, well, I don't, I don't really want to mourn. I don't really want to be poor. I don't really want to be reviled. But Jesus says the blessed, the blessed that see and the blessed that hear are the blessed that are poor in spirit. The blessed that see and hear are the blessed that are persecuted and reviled. You can't have one without the other. Blessed are your eyes and your ears, my family. The poor in spirit and such. Jesus' family are the blessed. And these disciples are the ones in Jesus' time who got to be blessed. They got to see and to hear. And they too were fulfilling a role in God's plan and economy that nobody else had or could. And he says it this way in verse 17. For truly I say to you, you blessed Disciples, you blessed members of my family who do hear and see. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. These disciples are blessed in more ways than they know. For truly, Jesus says, there are those in the past who longed, who desired, the word means craved, to see and to hear what these disciples were seeing and hearing. Righteous Isaiah, who saw God, didn't get to see this. Daniel, man of God, didn't get to see this. Enoch, who walked with God, didn't get to see this. These guys occupy a special place in God's economy. And Jesus says, you're blessed. For, Jesus says, there are those in the past who longed, who desired to see what you see and to hear what you hear, and they didn't get to hear it. Prophets, righteous people. But they didn't get to be that part of God's plan. But these disciples, these fishermen, these castoffs, these tax collectors, these traders, 
They get to be this part of God's plan. They get to be those people. They are blessed indeed because they surely occupy a particular and special place in God's plan. Jesus says they are blessed and points this out to make sure that they know it. They don't see in here as a fulfillment of prophecy, but blessed are your eyes, blessed are your ears because they see and because they hear. You're seeing things that people for generations have longed to see and it's happening right in front of your eyes. And I'm going to reveal truth to you because you're blessed. And you're blessed because I'm going to reveal truth to you. And this is God's plan. His disciples will get it, but no one else will. According to God's plan. Now, jump to verse 35. 34 and 35, I'm sorry. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. So this, which comes near the end of chapter 13, after, all, after most of the teaching and the parables of the chapter have been completed, reminds us that Jesus has indeed carried out his promise of disguising his truth to the crowds by teaching in parables. He's teaching in stories, and those who are not his hear him, but they don't really. They think they know what he's saying and doing. Aha, I get it. But they don't. Indeed, it says, he said nothing to them without a parable. Nothing. He is now speaking in code. He's now speaking in private speech. He's telling secret jokes that the crowd don't get and the disciples do. He said nothing to them without a parable. His disciples will get it, but no one else will. And again, this is God's plan. Verse 35, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. As a way to verify, I'd say verily verify, the full control of God in all of this, Matthew refers to what I think is an odd source of prophetic writing. And he references Psalm 78 too. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. That's from Psalm 78 too, as you can see there, which is a psalm, a maskil of Asaph. So it was written by Asaph, who's mentioned in a couple different points of Israel's history. This Asaph was probably a Levite, a leading singer at the time of King David. He wrote Psalm 50 and he wrote Psalms 73 through 83. And I just say it's odd to quote him because you don't see any quotes of Asaph. Usually if somebody's quoting a psalmist, they're quoting who? Usually David. But Asaph here in Psalm 78, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says this in his psalm, and Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sees this final fulfillment in Jesus using parables to show things hidden from the foundation of the world. And listen to me, this kingdom of heaven that Jesus is going to be describing in these parables is a secret thing. It's a mystery. And a mystery in Scripture is something that has not been revealed previously, but is being revealed now. And who is Jesus revealing it to? He's revealing it to His people And he's hiding it from those who are not his. Hidden from the foundation of the world. Dark sayings from of old. So Matthew connects those dots and sees this prophecy from the Psalms as fleshed out in Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 13. It's this kingdom 
the kingdom of heaven that we will explore going forward to see what was hidden from the foundation of the world and what was hidden from those who saw and heard in that time but didn't see and hear. So this is bent. Who can straighten what he has bent? Only he can. And so as we approach Matthew 13, it's very, very, very important that we don't just read it and say, oh, okay, I get it. Because you probably don't, if that's your attitude. I'm not saying you got to fast and pray and buffet your body and cut yourself and cry out to God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's going to be very easy to misunderstand these parables. Because he's speaking purposefully to hide it from people. And so this surface meaning that you've probably heard all your life Probably not the truth. And I'm not saying I've got secret knowledge here. I I don't. Again, I approach this with fear and trembling because I could really mess it up. Trying to find secret meaning. It's not about finding secret meaning. It's about letting Jesus reveal what He's saying. Because He's saying, I'm hiding it from some and I'm revealing it to others on purpose, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, fulfilling the prophecy of Asaph. So it's very important going forward that we don't just surface read this. That we don't just skim over it and say, okay, yeah, I get it. Because you probably won't. I probably won't. So that's coming. That's the introduction of our introduction. So for now, we need to apply what we've seen today. Three S's. Spot, sovereignty, and silence. Spot, not like the dog. We'll get the dog. Spot, sovereignty, and silence. First application point, we're calling spot to help you remember it. And what we're referencing here is Jesus speaking to the disciples and referencing their place in God's plan. They had a very particular and a very peculiar role in God's plan. And listen to me, you are not a prophet. You are not an apostle. They had these 12 men, one who ended up committing suicide, and God brought in another one from outside of them. They had a very particular place in God's plan. These guys were special. What made them special? The call of Jesus made them special. He placed them in the prophetic calendar, in the economy of God, in such a place that they were receiving the teaching that would be passed on to you and to me and to the generations after us. Praise God. It's the teachings of the apostles that we pass on through the Scriptures. So you're like, well, great. What's my application point? Well, first of all, know that you're not a prophet or an apostle. But you do speak for God. How? By using the word that he has preserved to speak for God. You individually, us collectively, we have a very specific and very particular place in God's plan. Am I saying that God can't succeed if you're not faithful? Absolutely not. God is going to have His glory. The plan of God is going to come to fruition. Again, we've read the end of the book. We see how it ends. And 
We can participate with Him. I can reach people nobody else can reach. I can disciple people that nobody else can disciple. I can be a husband to a woman that nobody else can be a husband to. I can be a father to children that nobody else can be a father to. So you, I, we have a very specific place in God's plan. The disciples, the apostles were hand chosen by Jesus himself to fill the roles they filled. And guess what? So were you. Hand chosen by Jesus himself to fill the roles that you fill. You were hand chosen by Jesus himself to fill the roles that you fill in your life. If you are his. He chose you. That's life changing. That's paradigm changing. That changes how you go to your workplace, how you treat your family, what you think and what you do, because Jesus chose you. Just like he chose them. Except he chose us in this time and he chose them in that time. And their role was different than ours. But we take what they were given and pass it on to other people. And nobody else can do that in your life but you. You occupy a particular spot in God's plan. And that's fantastic news. All through Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus gives promises to the one who overcomes. Listen to this one. From chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Very particular, very peculiar, very specific. We're not just a mass of people, even though we are that saints and angels from eternity past into eternity future we form a great throng that gathers around the throne and each one of us has a tiny stone that Jesus said you are this his own love letter of sorts by giving us this stone with a new name that nobody knows except me and him a very close personal relationship with Jesus Nobody has that but you. People will still ask, what's that name? I I, I, I don't know. (laughs) It says nobody knows, okay? And nobody knows the relationship that you have with Jesus except you. And it's a very particular spot in God's plan. Spot. Next one is sovereignty. Ah, that word. I think we like it. And I know that there are a lot of people, saved and unsaved, who hear this word and roll their eyes and shake their heads. And they're like, oh, you're talking about sovereignty again. And they kind of spit when they say it. Sovereignty. Let me tell you something. The sovereignty of God is the best news that there is. And what is God sovereign over? Everything. Two times today, we saw prophecies that said that God would speak things hidden from the foundation of the world and that those things would intentionally hide truth from some people. 
Now we are quick to confess God's sovereignty in creation, God's sovereignty in world events, in the affairs of men, in upholding the universe, in providing for us. But for whatever reason, we shrink back when people start saying that God is sovereign over who is saved and who is not. Either He is or He's not. We don't get to make that distinction. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, they said, I'm so glad I chose Jesus. I'm crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Non-inspired exclamation point. That's worth celebrating. That's worth worshiping Him for. And that's the application point here. Worship God for being sovereign in all things Worship God for being sovereign in salvation. In revealing what he could of his glory to Moses, God said in Exodus 33, 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now we covered this way back when we were going through Romans 9. Part of what makes God glorious, part of what makes God God, is that He alone can show grace. And grace is unmerited favor. He alone can show grace to whomever He will. It's up to Him. And that's good news. If He left it up to us, we would never choose Him. Life precedes action. Dead men tell no tales and dead men don't choose God. Ever. But in His grace, in display of His full glory, He has chosen to extend mercy to those whom He has chosen to extend mercy. And His plan has always been to share heaven with those vessels that were prepared for that mercy and to pour out His wrath on those vessels prepared for that wrath. So as we read these parables and as we see Jesus purposefully hiding truth from people so that they won't turn and be healed, do not think that Jesus is mean. And I hate that I have to say that. But we think that way. Well, that's mean, Jesus. Why didn't you give them a chance? Worship God for His sovereignty in all things, including salvation. Do I understand it all? No. Heavens, no. Am I God? No. Heavens, no. 
But when I read Revelation, it says salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb. I want to worship God for that. And you're going to worship God for that one day. That's what Revelation is saying. You're going to bend the knee and praise God that He had salvation in His hand. That it belonged to Him and He dispensed it how He chose. You're going to worship God for that one day. Why not now? There's only one other option. And that's our last application point. Silence. We are created to worship God. We are created to do what we did this morning through singing, through listening, through proclaiming the word, through coming to the table. And if we're not worshiping, we're silent. God commands worship. And if we're not worshiping, we're silent. Well, guess what God does if we don't worship Him? God goes silent. And that's a tragedy. The worst thing that God can do is leave us to our own devices. The worst thing that God can do is hide His truth from us so that we can't know that truth and turn to Him and be healed. And God's way of judgment always includes His silence. We see it here in Matthew 13. Jesus is turning heel. He's going a different direction. He's not reaching out. He's not teaching specifically. He's hiding truth to some, revealing truth to others. And those that, he's being, that He is hiding His truth from, they're getting silenced. They're getting static from God. And it's the harshest judgment that God can give us. You don't believe me? I don't have it up here. I forgot to put it in. Romans chapter 1. You're like, oh, I know what you're going to say. Good. I hope you do. I hope I can get to it is the other thing too. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, I don't know what I get to understand it, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore... God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Open your eyes, church. What is going on out there right now? God has gone silent. 
to the world. And he's let them go their way. And they not only do it, they give hearty approval to those who do. And they say, I'd rather worship the creature than the creator. Oh, they don't say that verbally, but they say that with their lives. And the silence of God goes on and they march to their judgment. Do you care? Are you somebody here today who's not hearing anything from God? I ain't never heard God. If you've opened the Bible, if you've heard it proclaimed, you've heard from God. And here's the other side of the coin to God's sovereignty. You are responsible for what God has said. Ignorance is no excuse at the throne of God. You're responsible for the truth that God has spoken. You're responsible for the God who has revealed Himself through creation and through His Word. And people loved darkness rather than light. And so did I. But God, in His mercy, and the great love with which He has loved us, sent His Son to pay the penalty for our sins, to pay a debt that we could not pay, and to invite us into His presence. He has done that. And you are responsible to respond to that. Salvation is not an option. Salvation is not a choice. Salvation is a command of God. And you will either obey it or disobey it to your peril. Oddly enough, I look, I did have those scriptures in there. And I've got this one too. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today, if you hear His voice, and you do, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Man is responsible before a sovereign God to obey the commandment of salvation. And do not harden your hearts because I promise you, the Scripture tells us that God will go silent on you. And you don't want that. Last verse, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, 4. He says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You say, well, what can I do if it's up to God? You respond. You are responsible to respond to the command of salvation today. Because there's coming a time when God will go silent 
and he will hide the truth from you and you will march into hell, a place of eternal punishment. Trying to scare me, preacher? Absolutely. Absolutely I am. Because there's an escape. Through the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. Whose glory it is to conceal a matter from men. Men whose glory it is to seek that matter out. Will you do that today? Let's pray. God, we praise you that you are sovereign in all things, including salvation. And we call out this morning, this afternoon, for the salvation of our souls individually and corporately. God, may we not be those who harden our hearts against your word. May we not be those who shake our head at you and your plan because we would have done it better or differently. May we not accuse you of wrongdoing because what can the clay say to the potter? Father, save us from ourselves. And may we not be those who have the truth hidden from us to the praise of your glory. Give us insight as we approach Matthew 13 in these parables. Help us to know the truth that sets us free. Reveal it according to your plan for your glory and for our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And just stand and receive a benediction. <clears throat> now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay neat with us if you can, though.